Welcome to the Data Section. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Chase, great to have you on the Data Stack Show today. We are here in person at Data Council Austin, which is so exciting to get to record some conversations in person instead of over a Zoom. I'm Brooks. I'm filling in for Eric today. He did not get to come to the conference. He got in a little bike accident. He's okay, but wasn't able to make it. So you should stuck with me today. But Chase, so excited to have you on. To kick us off, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, kind of how you got to where you are today and, and what you're doing today? Sure. So, so I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma where the primary industry was not venture capital, nor was it technology. <laughs> it was ranching. After college, I went to went to work in the finance industry for a bit. Did some worked at an investment bank and an alternative asset manager, and did that for a couple of years. And then realized moving numbers around on spreadsheets wasn't the most exciting thing in the world to me. And by this point, I had become aware of this place called Silicon Valley and this idea of tech-based entrepreneurship. You know, growing up, the you know, the idea of someone starting a company and that product reaching the world was just like totally a non-thing. And yeah, you know, I started to become aware of this and decided like, I want some of that. And so I quit my job, you know, cold turkey, had nothing lined up and no just figured out I was going to get to Silicon Valley somehow and shorten the story so we don't sit here and dwell on it forever. Right. But, uh, you know, I sent a cold email to a software company called Box because I had read a book by a guy named Clay Christensen called Innovator's Dilemma. And I found a video of him speaking at an event for this company. And I was like, hey, anyone who puts this guy on stage, they must be doing something right. And yeah, that led to my you know, first job in the Valley and drove out to U-Haul with my, my wife of three months who probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> and, that is uh, a bold move. And, and joined the company sight unseen. And and that that kicked off a, a you know that kicked off my career in the valley. I joined Box early, spent half a decade there on the go to market side, and wore a bunch of hats on the rise from you know we all still fit in a room to public company. After that, went to a software company called Segment, where I joined as the first hire for the BD team and helped grow that and build that function. And then got into venture capital about four years ago. So today, I'm an early stage investor, investing in mostly technical founders at the seed and Series A stage, and living the dream. Yeah, that's awesome. So before kind of before we hit record here, we we're just talking about your role now, and especially I think working with technical founders is kind of hey, let's really do some research and, and find the best products. But your background is on the kind of go to market side, and you're talking about even some lessons you've learned as an investor about the relationship between the product and kind of the go to market motion. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, happy to. So I think that one of the most common failure modes we see among founders is they don't think of go-to-market or the commercial side of their business as part of product development. The idea that I think a lot of founders will pursue is they look at the problem that needs to be solved and they try to build you know an elegant solution to solve that problem. And they're actually not wrong in doing that in the sense that 
you know, building deep empathy for this problem and trying to like build a really great solution to it is actually a good thing to do. And that's half the battle. The other thing that you have to do is figure out like, how do I get this out into the market? And, you know, your product isn't just how, like what you've built, it's how your customers come to realize it. And that means understanding how these buyers and users of the technology become aware that the problem that you're solving is one that they have. It, it means trying to understand how they would go about seeking a solution for that problem. So not just what competitors of yours might they look for, but like, what are the substitutes? What are the internal, you know, tasks they do to, you know, brute force that problem? How would they go about evaluating the solution to that problem? So what are the decision criteria for that? And who is involved in that? And then ultimately, like, you know, what is the thing that's going to compel them to buy? And you, and all of those things are actually part of getting your product into the hands of, of a customer. And I'm going to give some, you know, some very like straightforward example here, but in probably the most like rudimentary example, but I think it'll drive this point home. You know, so for example, if one of my decision criteria as a company for whether or not we can use a product is whether it has something simple like SSO, you know, that you know, that matters from a go-to-market standpoint, and that also matters from, you know, from a product development standpoint. Now, that's a more simple example. I think a more, like a little bit more difficult one would be, well, you know, if, who is the buyer? Like, you know, there are users of technologies and there are buyers of technology. And what is the thing that the buyer cares about from an organizational standpoint when they're evaluating these tools? And what are the metrics that they're trying to move within their organization that would actually say, Hey, this is something that matters to me. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's great if it makes users happy, but if that's not going to, you know, move the needle for this single person who is the, or single or group or whatever who is involved in making the decision, then it doesn't matter if user the end users like it. It matters if the features and and the value that those features are providing are actually moving that needle for that person and so or that group of people. And so I think that like trying to consider all of these things is really important for you know, actually just building a problem or building a product that people are actually going to buy. One of the things you mentioned was just this kind of thought exercise thinking about products in go to market. Can you just rehash that for us? So, I, you know, there's this, you know, we run this thought experiment. If you, it's empirically true. And I think it was Peter Thiel who might've said some version of this previously. So I'm borrowing this idea. But it's empirically true that you can build a monopoly selling an undifferentiated product through a differentiated go-to-market or a differentiated distribution. But if you were to flip that, the inverse of that is not actually true. So if I have you know, a differentiated product, but the way that I reach customers is, is completely undifferentiated, it's completely non-unique, then it's really hard to build a monopoly. And I think you know an example of the former, I think we can come up with multiple examples of Commodity products are undifferentiated products that are just giant companies. I mean, look at oil and gas, look at airlines. Like these are exactly the same product all the way and through. But if, but you know, if you look at the other example, like let's pretend I've got that absolute best charger in the world. I've built, I've got it supplied the best. It charges phones the most quickly. But if I'm selling that on Amazon and I don't have any edge to reach those users, like it's going to be really hard for me to rise above the fold and build a great company there. And there are ways to build great companies on, on Amazon, 
but they've been able to figure out a way to differentiate what they're doing among their competitors, among the other people. I think a lot of technologists and a lot of founders will get caught up in trying to build a technically elegant solution, a very sophisticated solution, thinking that if they can do that you know, in the most excellent way, then that's going to be the thing that causes them to win. But I think the thing that, I think that you know, building a product that solves a problem and you know, having product market fit you know, is a necessary condition, but it's definitely not a sufficient one. I think winning to, to meet that sufficient condition, winning means figuring out like, how do I win the ground game? How do I win the go-to-market game? in helping get this thing into the hands of people. That's a very interesting like thought experiment. You mentioned two terms. You said go to market and distribution, right? Let's get a little bit like in explaining the terms. And what's the difference between the two? I'm using them I'm using them interchangeably. Okay. I'm using it as a catch-all for you know, just process of taking this thing that's built and mm-hmm. getting the market to realize it. And how does it usually look like when you start, right? Because you start like the company, you have something in your mind as a founder. Usually, it's probably like a technology that you have in your mind, especially if you're like a technical person, right? What are the steps like to start like laying down, laying out like a strategy for going to market? So I love this question because one of the things that I often see is founders will decide that They will see the importance and they will decide, I'm going to turn this on, basically going to put a key in ignition, turn it on, it's going to work. And they make a decision kind of like in isolation around like, hey, we're just going to get this thing working. And what they'll do is they'll say something like, this is a common phrase I'll hear is, you know, we're just going to, we're going to turn on product-led growth because we think that the way that this should be sold is like bottoms up. And, And, or they'll say, we're going to turn on top-down sales because the way that we think that we want to sell this is by selling to VPs of Eng. And the problem is that statement doesn't actually say, didn't incorporate the language, how does my customer buy? Mm-hmm. Because the way that you go to market isn't really a, isn't a function of how you want to go to market, like how you want to sell. It's a function of how your customers want to buy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so coming back to a statement I made earlier around how would your customers become aware that this is a problem that they have and how would they go about evaluating a solution here? You know, if that means that the way they become aware of it is they go to Google and they search for a tool, they go and test it out and then they buy it and swipe a credit card independent of talking to anyone in their company, hey, product-led growth might work for you. Um, If the way that they become aware of a solution is, well, someone has to call them, ring their doorbell, and send an e- send an email or send a care package or go to a conference and mm-hmm. say, "Hey, you know, here's a problem that you probably don't realize you fully have, mm-hmm. or here's a different way of thinking about a problem that you're trying to deal with internally." Let us help, like let us help you evaluate a solution here, and then if there are multiple people involved in trying to make a decision around that, multiple stakeholders in that problem then you're doing top-down sales. And so to your, going back to the question you asked, which is, you know, what are the steps? What is the sequencing? The first steps is, is trying to understand kind of the, this, the problem space, not just your competitors, but just like all the substitutes for this, what, this mm-hmm. thing that you're doing. And then try to understand how your customers or your prospective customers would go about trying to tackle that. How would they evaluate tools? How do they typically buy things in this category? And that's kind of like the first thing 
That's the first set of questions you ask, and you work backwards from that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But let's say you're an engineer who is, let's say, like working in a company like AWS or Meta or Netflix. Take any of you know, like these crazy big companies out there that they build like amazing pieces of technology, right? And you build something there, right? Let's say it also gets like open source. And you are tempted like to go out there and like build a business around it. You might think that like, okay, I built it in here. So there is like a user or like a customer internally, right? How close to reality is that? And like what kind of, let's say, change in mindset requires like for for a person who has gone through that, right? Like, because they built something for someone, it's not like they built it like, it's like from scratch completely, right? Like someone asked them and like, there is like internal value for this, but probably like this internal value is not exactly like, but the rest of the market is out there. So what's your take on that? And like, what you would say to these engineers that they are thinking or doing something like that? Well, I think, I mean, yeah, the good news is in the case of that engineer, they've got some sense that there is a problem and it can be solved a certain way and they've built something that to solve it that way. I think that you know, the first thing I'd say to them is like the way that the way that companies are going to buy and you know look for technologies and evaluate technologies like this is not, you know, an internal PM saying like, hey, we need this thing. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, a business leader, you know, calling someone on the, you know, developer tools team or something like that it's going to happen in a much different way and so like you know the assumptions that they've made around or well maybe not even assumptions but like the experiences they've had around mm-hmm. like how the problem gets discovered and, and, and or the, and the solution gets ultimately realized by the organization is not going to be the same when you're you know have a different email alias and actually have to get money to change hands mm-hmm. to to get them to buy whatever it is you're selling yeah Hundred percent. Like, how like that person should engage into that, like learning that. Like, do you believe that? Let's say we have the smartest like engineers, like from whatever company, yeah. okay, and they get the smartest VCs out there, including you, of course. Like, to give them money, <laughs> right? Uh, and they are ready, like, to go and attack the market. How they are going like to learn about that stuff, right? Because okay, like he must take time like to learn. It's not like something that you just like read the textbook and you go and execute, right? So, do you believe that like they should do it on their own first of all? Do you think that they should bring let's say salespeople or like go to market people? Let's put like everyone like under an umbrella there early on to take on this role and like try like to do that. Like, what have you seen like working and what not? So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with an anecdote and then I'll answer your question very directly. Last night I was at one of these you know fun happy hours for the data conference and I was speaking with an engineering leader out of Twitter who was starting a company and you know, he volunteered one of the weaknesses that he's concerned about himself. He's like you know I'm just he goes I'm a wonderful engineer he goes but I'm just not comfortable with go to market stuff. I'm just not comfortable with commercial stuff. And what I, the where I challenged him is I said, look, if you define the problem that you're solving as I'm building this product for this technology, then you will be bad at go-to-market stuff. 
But if you expand the scope of the problem to include like, and getting it in the hands of people and understanding how they might, you know, consume this technology in their organization, you've just changed the, you've just changed the problem definition. And now you do, your job is to apply your engineering brain into that and not just building the technology. And so what does that mean from a, you know, from a you know, job to be done if you're, you know, I've just left Netflix or whatever company and I'm, you know, how do I actually, you know, get these learnings? You know, as you're having those conversations with customers about, you know, the problem itself and, you know, the pains that they're having in the organization, start also asking the questions like, well, what have you tried in the past? What other solutions did you evaluate? Who was involved in that? When you're looking at tools like this, how do you typically evaluate those as a company? What are the metrics that matter that this tool needs to influence? Oh, it's a cost thing. Oh, it needs to move revenue in some certain way. Mm-hmm. Oh, it needs to minimize risk along this dimension. Yeah. And you start figuring out the value metrics that actually matter. And then it kind of gives you a little bit of a North Star. Like, okay, well, if I bring this product to market, I know that these are the type of people who are involved in choosing this tool. I know that this is the types of things that they're going to be evaluating me against. Mm-hmm. And I know that these are the metrics I need to be able to influence to actually earn the right to ask for the order. And so I think it's, and so I think it's just, it's part of the conversations that they're already having with people inside the, like, you know, as they're doing their customer discovery that every, you know, every good founder, every technologist does whenever they're starting a company. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I want to go back to your past. You mentioned that you were doing like business development at segment, right? Yes. And the reason that I want to go to segment like specifically is because first of all, I'm aware of the product and I know that when it came out, Okay, it's not exactly like the easiest thing like to go and pitch to someone, right? Like, and also it might have users and buyers that are different, right? Like, I can see that. Like, I, I can hear like developers talking about segments. I can hear marketeers talking about segments. I don't know exactly who's paying at the end. So you, as like a person who is getting in the company and starts like business development on that, like, what was the hardest part to figure out the perfect, let's say, pitch? What was the hardest part to figure out the perfect pitch? I would say that it's, it was understanding the value metric that mattered for the, for the buyer of segment. But, so first part is like figuring out who that buyer is mm-hmm. and then understanding what it is that they care about that would actually compel them to open their wallet and buy. So in the case of segment, the people who are downstream to the problem that segment helps with are people using analytics tools, so product managers, people using marketing tools like you know, HubSpot and Google Analytics and Iterable and things like that. And so at your instinct to say, okay, well, we, maybe we should go sell to product managers because they're you know, using Amplitude and Mixpanel and things like that, or, or we should be using or we should be selling to the people using HubSpot and marketers and because they're the ones who are downstream to the data that segment's providing. But these aren't the people involved in implementing and these aren't the people who own the budget. The people who are involved in you know, implementing segment is engineering and therefore engineering owns the budget. So it's like, well, my pitch at segment is not to the product people and the marketing people. They're not even involved in the decision. My pitch at segment has to be something that resonates with the engineering leader. And so then it was a function of understanding, well, what does the engineering leader care about? They care about productivity, they care about keeping their engineers happy, and they care about cost. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about what can we do along those dimensions? How can we influence those 
such that when we make the case to that engineering leader who holds the budget for what the problem the segment solves, that we can actually influence those things for them. And so, and we did, we were able to come up with a story along each one of those because we're able to say like, hey, this is infrastructure you have to build yourself. It's going to take this long. It's going to be this hard. Here's what it would take to do it with segment. It's fast. It's less expensive. You know, here's the boring work that your engineers are going to complain about because what, you know, the thing that we're replacing is not rocket science. It's just boring, you know, you know, boring re-implementation of collection libraries and SDKs. But now you can just do it once a segment. It's easier to maintain. And by the way, this, you know, the, this whole do, using something like segment means you can dedicate these resources to you know, other core problems for your businesses. When that realization was there, that's whenever I think the floodgates open. And so then everything pivots towards, talk, you know, selling engineering and moving the metrics that matter for them. Hmm. Are there playbooks in go to market? Like, are there like recipes that like someone who is like a nearly founder, like a first time founder also, mm-hmm. like they haven't like tried like to do it before, like something that they could follow. And a second question on that, like how much like people should be paying attention on like the content out there around that stuff? Oh, that's a great question. So I think there, there's lots of playbooks, but I'll flag one, like one task or one playbook that I think a founder should like hone in on. And that's customer discovery. And customer discovery is what it sounds like. It's trying to understand what are the set of problems that basically brought this customer to your front door? Like, why are they even talking to you today? What is the business need that matters to them, et cetera, et cetera. And the point is like, it's, you know, it's part one, which is straightforward, which is to understand like, hey, are we a good fit here? Can we solve this problem? But two is, this is the more important feature of discovery. It's figuring out if they're actually qualified if there's enough pain involved in here that they might be compelled to act and buy whatever it is you're selling. Because, you know, in startup land, the most important asset you have is not capital. You know, there's lots of that and there's lots of people like me who are willing to you know, make investments and make sure that there's lots of capital available. And as much as there's not a bank run, sorry, SVB joke, <laughs> I don't know when this is coming out. And the thing, the most important thing that founders like have that is in short supply is their time. And so I think that in the early stages, there's an outsized importance for founders to make sure that they're getting the best return on their time. And that's what customer discovery is doing. It's helping me say with confidence that like, Hey, there is real pain on the other side of this zoom call or this table that is going to cause this customer to, to be willing to act and open up their wallet and try to you know, evaluate and, and, and tackle the solution. And they're not just having a conversation with me because they, you know, they heard me on a podcast and think I built a great, an elegant solution. Yeah. And so I think that the thing that I would encourage founders and you know, new company builders to really try to understand and look for content about is like, how do I do customer discovery really well mm-hmm. so I can make sure I'm not spending time on, on the wrong customers? And the last thing I'll say on this is like the... You know, one thing that every founder guarantee is going to run into, guarantee it, is there's going to be that logo that is like the one, it's a logo, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, Lyft is talking to me. Or like, you know, Procter & Gamble picked up the phone and they're doing a discovery call with this guy or this gal. And they're going to think like, oh my gosh, because it's this great logo, I've got to go all in on this. 
and I've got to do everything I can to be a hero and try to get this logo over the finish line. But I've seen this over and over again. They don't do great customer discovery. They get the logo starry eyes and they spend time in cycles on this customer when this customer is not there to buy. I say more often than not, if they're like one of these large companies and it's a big company, big logo, you're talking to JP Morgan, you're just the most interesting thing in their day. <laughs> and so they just want to talk, they want to do something different than the internal meeting <laughs> where someone's going to be pontificating for 30 minutes about something that doesn't really matter. And they're just pumped to talk to you. And so don't confuse that for a customer yeah. that is excited by whatever it is you're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I totally get that. I can relate to that, but I have a but, a big but here. Okay. Bring it on. I'm an engineer, like, it's all about, like, in my career, like, until today, it's all about getting into the flow. No one's, like, I have, like, my nose counseling, like, headsets, and I'm me, then the machine, we're becoming one thing, right? And that's it, like, Nirvana. I don't have, like, to talk to people. Like, there's nothing inconvenient with my compiler, okay? You said you don't like to talk to people. No, I don't. I have my compiler there. Yeah. Like, I have something that, like... I know how to work with and produce outcome, right? And now suddenly I have like to do like something very different, like something that's like much more vague. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Let's do like customer discovery, but like doing customer discovery, it's not exactly, let's say a science. It's a little bit of art also. Like mm -hmm. you need to build intuition. You need like to hear what the person says and listen behind the words, what's happening there, right? As you said, like, you have, you're just like the most interesting thing uh, for someone like at JP Morgan instead of pontificating like during a call. But you are not going to get that like at the beginning because you are not, let's say, that's not a bad thing, right? Like it's, I, I'm not saying that like engineers have like some kind of like handicap because of like, it's just like a different nature of like how we produce like value and work, right? And it takes time to change that. So. It's uncomfortable, dude. Like, it sucks. Like, it's not nice. And it's even worse when you get, like, on the call and you start, like, hearing, like, no. Like, I don't like that. Or it doesn't matter. Or, yeah, I like it. And, like, after, like, 10 calls, you're like, okay, are you going to pay now? I'll pay? Well, no. Like, why? I would do that. So, what's your advice, like, to people on, like, that they get into that, they start, they feel the discomfort, right? How they can help themselves like with that? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And I empathize with that tension because if it's not something you enjoy doing, it's kind of like, well, why, why should I sign up to do this thing? Mm -hmm. I'd say that like, yeah, there are multiple routes to get to the information that you need to really understand the commercial design of your business. And, you know, one way to do that is to like have you know, build primary information, talking to people. But I think that there is still a lot of good content, you know, for specific markets and ways to come by that information, you know, with your headphones on <laughs> in front of a computer. <laughs> and so like, and, I mean, so like you're building a data infrastructure product, like there, you know, there is lots of stuff that you like, uh, maybe I'm building the next, I don't know, like the next DBT called MBT or something, whatever that means. And you know, there's things I can read about, like how people interact with DBT and how, you know, how analysts typically 
you know, evaluate new tools and I can think about my own experience. You know, if I've you know, been an analyst myself, well, what was my instinct here? And I can consume information to get to that. But I would say that like, you know, I would say that, you know, with anything, you know, the best route to information is primary information. And, it, and if you can do it in a setting that allows you to like ask questions and dig deeper and, you know, perhaps you can get there faster. But I would say that like, you kind of have to do what works for you. Like at the end of the day, like our work is not, you know, we don't need to be, you know, mercenaries, you know, we should enjoy the things that we're doing. Yeah. And so you kind of have to figure out that the mode that works. Yeah, 100%. All right, one last question from me. Go-to-market usually has like two like major components. One is like sales and one is like marketing, right? What's the difference and which one should someone like engage with first? Oh, that's a good question. Which one should... All right, so we'll define them first and then I'll talk about sequencing. So I kind of think of you know, marketing is a catch-all for a lot of different things. Yeah. I think that in the early stage, the feature of marketing that is the most important is product marketing. Mm -hmm. I think of product marketing as the translation layer between what problem my product solves and how my product does it. And so I think that there's a great inclination. There's often an inclination among founders, especially those that are technical, especially when they realize that they've built something that's unique and elegant to want to talk about the how, yeah. right? Hey, we do it this way. We built these great, you know, something under the hood. It's really fast. We're probably using generative AI in some cool way. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. But the thing is like, comp like you, you can only get attention for so long and people don't typically res re respond to how. They respond to what problem does this solve? And so why do I care? Hey, this makes it easy to get your data from point A to point B. I didn't say how. I didn't say, <laughs> I didn't explain the technology. But if you care about getting your product from point A to point B, then like we're going we're gonna to deliver some value here. And so I think that product marketing is basically figuring out the way to talk about the what, right? The problem that we solve. And so, you know, tactically, this means understanding the language that your customers use or your prospective customers use to talk about this problem and how they think about it. And then understand and understanding the language that would actually compel them to act on it. Compel them to say, like, you know, I've got these other set of priorities, but this is this seems important, and this is something I want to look more at. And what I would, you know, one challenge I'd put to you know founders or technologists or any product builder is to try to like kind of keep the what out or the how out of the picture, right? The how lives on my docs, my documentation page, mm -hmm. and docs are the best place to understand how. And any person who wants to go dig beyond the what, they can go find your docs, they can read the how. But if your messaging is a series of how, you're probably not going to get, you're not going to drive urgency. But if I can talk about what, it makes it easier for buyers to self-select. Like, hey, I, this is a problem I have. Yeah, this is some problem I care about. I got to figure out how to tackle this. Like, hey, like, let's, just, let's go read these talks. Like, yeah. there's something here. And so I think that's the most important thing on an early stage and like early stage marketing, especially because where I see the sequencing get messed up is when founders will say like, well, I've built the product. I'm ready to sell it. I'm just going to go turn on like search engine, you know, buy search engine ads, turn on, you know, do my growth marketing and just start sending out emails. But like, that's going to lean on deaf ears if you haven't optimized product marketing, basically the way that we talk about our problem mm -hmm. product. So, you know, so I would say getting that right is important. And then to your question on like, you know, what comes first, you know, marketing or selling, I think that 
to do repeatable selling, you have to have the messaging nailed because this is about handing someone a playbook. This is how we talk about a product. This is how we position it. And then getting them to go execute that playbook. But I do think that revealing that playbook does take some early reps with customers and, and trying and failing with certain messages, trying with failing with certain ways that we sell to those businesses. Like we run a POC, do we not? Do we talk about pricing up front? Do we not? Like, how do we talk about pricing? And then, and so I would say that like real repeatable selling follows getting the product marketing, getting the messaging right. Mm -hmm. But to reveal that you have to do some selling. You got to get some reps out in the field. 100%. And it's a very interesting like conversation that we're having and like, we don't usually have these because we like to talk like more like technical people about like the technical problems. But um, like I realized like that's like why I, like, I stopped because like I'm thinking like as you talk and like it's very like how to provocative for me too. So what I wanted to ask actually is you said about like product marketing and the how, the difference between the how and what problem we are solving, right? And I wanted like to ask you, is this like true even when we market developers? Like if our audience is like developers, do we again like need to go out there and like talk about the what we are solving or focus more on the how? And the reason like I'm saying that is because it's very common to hear from developers about the fluff, right? I'm going to a landing page and it's actually true. Like we get too abstract many times, like in the copy that we use, like on the landing page for our product, right? And they're like, okay, I'm done with the flap. I don't care about the flap. Tell me like the dirty details, like how this thing works, why like you have like features of like the other system does not have or whatever. Or at the end, it doesn't matter. Like developers are still consumers, right? And they have similar behaviors to like anyone else. It depends on the, mar- the market's maturity around their understanding of the problem. And so, for example, ETL. ETL ETL is a category that's very well understood among its buyers, Mm -hmm. right? And so, or or data warehousing, for example. Like, data warehousing is a category that's very well understood among its buyers. And in those cases, like, you don't have to do, you don't have to talk much about the what. Maybe in the case, you know, when Fivetran was coming out, it was like, hey, you know, ETL with a lot less headaches, yeah. like, okay, you know, but in those examples, your audience is already has a good bearing on the problem that it solved, the thing that they would hire your product to do. And then you do want to be, then you do want to push more of the how forward. Mm-hmm. But I would say that like the balance is trying to figure out like which how matters for driving that first interaction and, wh- and which how is just going to create too much noise. Mm-hmm. And there's also like, there's also another balance here where you kind of want to leave some to be re- desired, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to put everything out there yeah. because you want to give them a reason to engage because once they're engaging, that's whenever, you know, that's whenever you have an opportunity to kind of build on that and potentially drive that to a sale. If it's a self-service product, like it's still the same thing. It's like what information is actually necessary. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like all the implementation details. It doesn't have to be all of the, you know, that what makes this technically better than everything else out there. But the thing that matters is like, what is necessary for them to be able to evaluate this tool and make a decision? And, and so, and so like, if you're to distill that, 
<laughs> if I was going to distill this, it is what is the state of maturity around our understanding of the problem that it solves? Yeah. And then what is necessary to get to a decision? Yeah. Actually, you mentioned five terms. Obviously, I have like a lot to say, right? Because I experienced like that period of time where, like, okay, building like a product, you are addressing, let's say, technically, let's say, a well-defined category. But the category is like actually like changing or like breaking into like subcategories in a way, right? Like because if you think about like what happened with like systems like Fivetran is that we took like the concept of ETL and we separated like into two parts. We named it like ELT, but actually like these systems are more of like an ingestion system, right? Like the main work that you have to do is like to extract data and load data and then we'll see what happens, right? Like, we don't care about that. And I think it's very interesting to see that, like, with Fivetran, who is, let's say, the winner in this category, because at some point, they started implementing functionality close, like, to DBT to allow the transformation part, but they abandoned that. And instead of that, they're like, okay, we have DBT now, like, we can work, like, you should be using DBT, not, like, the SQL functionality that we offer like as part of the product experience and you know like what, what was like very interesting back then was that you would build like this experience which is like so seamless like you just like click a few buttons let's say and you start like seeing your data getting into your data warehouse but still like it took a lot of time for the market to believe in like not the need necessarily, but also like well, this is like a sustainable product at the end. But mm -hmm. it makes sense for me like to pay because we're talking about infrastructure here. Like, okay, yeah, sure. It's not like removing a data warehouse and putting a different data warehouse there, but still it is infrastructure. Like it takes effort like for a company like to put it in and like take it out. And people, you know like what most people were saying, which is kind of like crazy in retrospect. Why you're building this? This is a feature for Looker. Like, Looker will build it at some point. And by the way, like, back then was the time where, okay, the BI market was like really hot, right? And a little bit before, like, all the consultation that was happening. So it's very interesting to, like, even like existing categories, how like new categories are emerging. And, okay, going through like a new category creation is brutal. And it doesn't matter like where you are like to do that. If you are like a YC company, you are not a YC company, you are going to spend a couple of years where everyone is going to say you are crazy, like spending time on this shit, right? The listeners can't see this, but I'm nodding my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. It's. Uh... Do you think that like a founder, even if like, let's say, they, they, they don't, especially when you're like a first time founder, you don't, Think in terms of like categories, okay? Like you shouldn't actually. But do you think that they should try and attach the product to an existing category, even if it is going to form like a new category, or like go from the beginning into like nowhere, like something completely like different? Like one day, Gartner is going to add us their category, and we'll be proud we did this. This is the question that faces just about every innovator. I think that yeah, the nice thing about the nice thing about there's pros and cons for both, right? And so the nice thing about stapling yourself to an existing category 
is your customers already have an anchor from which they can start to evaluate you as a product. And so we'll come back to like the five trend days. It's like, you know, we are an ETL tool, easier to use, right? We'll just kind of distill it like that, yeah. right? And so it's like, that's kind of the anchor. I'll speak to, I'll speak to segments journey here and as a way to like make, like elucidate some of the tension here. So a segment defined or attempted to define a category called customer data infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one, one way to simply collect the events that your customers are generating across all your properties and then send it to all the tools where that's used, right? It's infrastructure product, just moving data around. There was an existing category called CDPs, customer data platforms. And yeah, there's one change of, you know, one change of words at the end, <laughs> but these are like fundamentally different things. And the CDP yep. at that time had really been defined as, you know, we'll call it in like the live ramp, you know, shape of the universe, which is like one place to store like all the data that you've bought about users on the internet and that you can use for marketing and yep. et cetera. And segment with like kind of was, you know, at the time we were very explicit, like, look, we are for first party data and we are about moving data around. We are not like this, you know, data intelligence, you know, layer that you know, we are just really high performance and pipe pipelines. And so we're like, well, we're going to define ourselves as customer data infrastructure, mm -hmm. customer data infrastructure. But then when you go out to the market and you're like, Hey, we are this, we are CDI, customer data infrastructure. Like, we don't need that. I don't I've never even heard of that, right? Because <laughs> everyone had been building it. They'd been building this stuff internally themselves. Yeah. And they didn't realize it's a problem they have. And it made it really hard to like get some of those early conversations going. But we were very adamant for a long time saying like, look, we don't want to be associated with this kind of, this category that has a lot of baggage. Yeah. But slowly the category definition started to change. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, it's a, the category moved, a, CDP moved a little bit closer to us and customers are now raising their hands thinking, we kind of need this version of a CDP that's a little bit, looks a little bit more like segment. And so then it was like, okay, well, we're going to re-anchor ourselves to CDP and then we're going to sell them that category and build on that demand. And then we'll use the sales cycle to change the way that they're thinking about the definition of this problem. And so the challenge of that is your customers come with like a list of things that they're going to evaluate this product against. And you're saying like, look, let me change the way you think about this problem. Let me see if I can change that list. And that's a hard thing to do, but so is building a category and defining it from scratch. Yeah. You know, in the case of actually doing category creation, you know, I think there are ways to do it. It's not easy. You know, some tactics that I've seen work and then ones that I've seen work effectively are defining like a very like straightforward vocabulary yeah. for those, for that category. And then lots and lots of repetition. Someone who I think has done this well in the data space is to potentially resonate with this audience would be Bar Moses at Monte Carlo Data. Yeah. You know, data observability and data quality, if you've never heard those two terms together, you can kind of like, you know, you, you can kind of instinctually think like, okay, I kind of think what's going on here. I know what observability tool is. You put data in front of it. So I think I know what's happening. And... And it wasn't something that people were talking about, at least the way that they are, have been for the last few years, you know, six, seven years ago, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't a thing at all. But I think one of the things that Barr did well is they hired a content marketer very early in the company's journey. And then on a weekly cadence or more than that, there was new content about data observability, data downtime, data quality, and they just drove the, that language over and over again. 
And then eventually the category starts to merge. And so I think that like, I think there are tactics to do that. I think for, I think what Guillermo did with Vercel and creating a you know, category around a CDN for React or for React components, which talk to any engineer, you know, seven years ago, they're like, you're, I won't use bad words, but you're, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's not. And the thing that he did was he brought the market forward by being out in front and center and talking about this future version of the world and getting people excited about what the world could like if you were designing your applications in this way. Yep. And he did it with repetition. And so I think that like category creation really depends on having, or like one of the core features of category creation and do it well is a lot of repetition and a willingness to be out in front and center and kind of become like the spiritual thought leader for that movement. Yeah. Because it is a movement when you're creating a category. If you're not able to do that, then I would think about like how, what can we anchor to, you know, without too much risk of being associated with, yeah. you know, kind of getting into the wrong, you know, evaluations. But it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off the whole way. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I think at the end, like it has, it has to do with the founder, right? Like you need. And there's no wrong and right here. It's not like you have to be like a category creator or you don't have to be a category creator. But I think it, it has a lot to do with also the person that they get like involved, like their personalities, how they like their communication style. Like all these things are super, super important in my opinion, like in the founding team that you have at the beginning. It might happen like later on, like maybe, like, but I think that's like very like rare. Like you need to have these thought leadership at the beginning and there are examples like that like we can see like with like modal for example right like you have like you don't even have like to use the product to know about the product because you have someone who is in the forefront out there like talking about not just the company and the product and the technology but also like everything around that right and you have to be that person, like you have to be able like to do that and not everyone can do that and that's fine. Like, I think the most important characteristic is like that you should have like as a first time founder, like just like to be honest with yourself, like it's okay, like it's okay if you don't feel like comfortable like going and creating a category, right? Like there's still like ways to go and succeed. There's no one way or another, like something is like more glorious than the other, right? You know, cool. One last question for me. <laughs> I know. Keep them coming. Yeah. <laughs> Pricing. That's Pricing. Like, yeah, that's like another, I think, very interesting topic, especially like for first-time founders. How do we price? And most importantly, like how do we iterate on pricing? I think like the biggest fear people have is that the moment that you put your price out there, then, you know, it's like, we can't take it back. Like, we cannot change it. It's like something difficult. It's something, I don't know, some people might feel like they are cheating, right? If, let's say they put like, no, it's $10 and tomorrow I make it like $20 or like $5, right? I have my opinion on that. I'll keep it for the end, but I'll <laughs> share it. I'm very opinionated on it. You always fight at the end. There's no way like to not fight about pricing in like when you start a company with like your founders or like whoever else is like the, your board, like you will have discussions about that stuff. You cannot avoid it. But I think there, there are ways to enjoy it. 
doing it, but I want to hear from you. So what's your take like on pricing? So I'll react to the second thing you said, and then we'll and then I'll answer your question around pricing. Like the statement you made around, like once it's out there, you can't hit the undo button, and like how do you iterate? I actually think it's entirely false. I think founders have an overinflated, or even like even larger companies have an overinflated view of how aware the market is of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I do think that you have the flexibility to change pricing. Now, could it? like a company at AWS scale, you know, turn around and say, we're going to change our pricing model and then the metrics for how we're doing it. No, I think the world would probably unfold at that point. But I think there is a point that's probably higher than what most founders, you know, believe about. We'll call it, if you're still a private company, chances are you can probably still iterate pricing with very few, like very small implications and no one cares. So I do want to say that there. And then I will say this, you know, on that point, founders also need to be willing to iterate, be comfortable iterating into perpetuity, meaning, hey, I might have had the right pricing model today. That actually could be the wrong one in three years. And so I think there needs to be a willingness to look at it and be willing to like adjust that. So then let's come back to your question around like, well, how do you price? I would say there's probably like three things that I would consider at this. One is like, what is the unit of value or the value metric for like that my product creates? And so like, and so, you know, for example, if I'm, I don't know, if I'm an infrastructure product and, you know, the unit of value here is like, well, I could build this thing internally or I could buy this from you and, you know, install it in a month and then it's, you know, great. I'll never have to deal with it again. The unit of value is not number of users, right? We're not doing user licensing there. And so I would, and so I think value is one. I think that also, you know, I'm going to come back to the statement I made at the very beginning of this podcast, which is like, how do your customers want to buy? If your customers, if the way that they buy all of the other tools in this category and all in the way that they think about buying infrastructure is on, I don't know, number of nodes or API calls to come in and offer something that's completely different than that. Unless your customer feel like has a lot of angst with the way it's currently priced and they're just like, I hate this, this is the end of the world. If I, if I see another bill for API calls, I'm going to die. Don't try to get too creative because otherwise you'll induce confusion that could be unnecessary for your customers. And there's just some level of comfort that you just want to operate around. And then I would say like the, you know, the, you know, the third thing is make sure that whatever your pricing is, it's not going to disincentivize growth and disincentivize consumption. Yeah. So second, I mean, we went through like a, this was like a difficult part of of the journey for the company, which is like, how do we capture the value that we're creating for our customers? And, you know, you know, one iteration we thought about API calls, but these are really hard to predict for customers. And if I can't predict what I'm going to be spending with you, I don't feel comfortable buying your product because it could just, you know, surprise me. And, and you also get in a situation where you're disincentivizing some bit of consumption and we don't want that, you know, we don't want that as a company. And so then we thought to ourselves, like, well, you know, we ended up settling on this thing called monthly tracked users. And best way to think about it is if I'm using segment and I have a hundred users, the way my pricing is dependent on the number of users that I have, right? In a given month. And you know, that's that, you know, that worked pretty well for us. But you know, come back to the thing I said earlier, which the value we create is like basically moving data around. We're solving a data infrastructure problem, mm-hmm. simplifying that. And that doesn't necessarily always correlate with the number of users. And so we might've had companies that 
or might have using might have been using Segment to move data from one source to two destinations, but could have had you know millions and millions of users, like a consumer product. Yeah. And under our pricing logic, they'd be spending way more money than they had the capacity to spend. But then we could have big Fortune 500 companies using Segment that are B two B companies and have very few end users, yeah. call it a thousand end users, but they could be moving data from you know a hundred different you know, a hundred different sources to a hundred different destinations. Yeah. And so the value that they're capturing is outsized relative to the number of users. And so like, I don't know where the company, like how they're doing it today. I've been there for a while, but like it was a tough problem. And so and I give that example and I'm hopefully not revealing too much, but like I give that example just to demonstrate that like it's not, there's not obvious answers here, and but you have to be willing to like iterate and ask the hard questions make sure that you're capturing the value that you're creating for your customers. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I, okay, I'll give my opinion like on pricing. First of all, pricing, like as everything else that you do, like on building like your company, you have to iterate and yeah, you have to be bold with like making changes to be honest. And well, I think like people get wrong at the beginning is that the first time is that Pricing somehow is something that, you know, it's like too important for the market out there. But like the reality is that like when you're like just starting, nobody cares about you. And the moment like you get that, like it's a very liberating <laughs> like realization. Like nobody cares. Like not even like the people that are using you already, they probably don't care. Like... Like you are just like most people they buy, especially like when we are talking about infrastructure products, right? You won't like to take it, like run it, and you don't want to care about it. That's why like you are outsourcing the infrastructure right, to right. someone else, right? Like not because you won't like to be on top and like pay attention on it. Like if that does that, like, you will be watching Netflix, not like playing with data infra. So that's another thing. The other thing is that like when it comes like the pricing, I think what is like super important is like the like, pricing has to be simple for the customer to understand. Right? Like anything that's like too complicated, it's an indication that like there's something there that we don't get for your customer. Right? Like and there are like playbooks there. Like I, I like what you said at the beginning about like the um, how you, you price and like the model that you have. Like my like rule of thumb, for example, is like, is this a productivity product? If it is a productivity product, yeah, you should go and like have a seat-based like pricing because it's very easy for the people out there to calculate like how much they are going to invest in you and how much to expect to get back, right? Like every new Salesforce account is a new salesperson, right? Like they can almost like quantify exactly like each dollar that they pay on Salesforce, what will bring back, right? And it works for that. Can you do that like for data infrastructure for RDS? Can you imagine RDS with like seed-based like pricing? I mean, Splunk does it, I think, but Splunk is unique. Let's forget <laughs> about them, okay? No, no comment. <laughs> yeah, but like you can't. Like you need to have like some kind of like usage-based like pricing, right? And that's where like things I think stuff like getting complicated because what people don't understand is that calculating like and figuring out how to charge might be complex, but you have to hide this mm. from your customer. And the best example that I can give about that, and that's because like probably also my electrical engineering background, is like 
your utility bill like for electricity, right? Like the, the process of calculating the price of electricity is extremely complex. There's a lot of forecasting happening there. Like it's super, super complex, right? But you as a consumer, you don't have to know anything about that. You know that like you are paying like this amount of dollars and if you connect this thing with the heater, you can see the value out of this, right? Like, okay, software is, let's say, more complicated, but that's where like we should aim to. Like that's what our North Star as like people that build companies on top of technology should be, right? My only, let's say like, what I don't like that much, like when people like companies try to gamify the pricing. And I think we see that a little bit like with like the credit systems and like all that stuff, which yeah, like they have their own purpose, but there is also like a little bit of gamification that is happening there. So anyway, it's a huge topic. Yeah, but I can keep talking for like forever, obviously. <laughs> I'll add one thing to the user licensing. So I think one important feature of the user licensing model is making sure that when user one logs in, that person's experience is unique to them mm -hmm. relative to user two. Otherwise, you will have people sharing a, yeah. sharing licenses. Yeah. And if for a product like Slack, <laughs> like I log in, it's way different than whenever yeah. you log in, and it's gonna be it's gonna be unique. But like I don't know, there are tools that <laughs> not to reveal anything, but there may be tools that you know VC firms pay for that give you access to research or data or things like that. I log in, it's the exact same as you. I'm not gonna pay for two licenses. <laughs> yeah, I think that get figuring out how to like create unique user experiences yeah. is a way to like command pricing there. And then I'll and then I'll say this like, you know, trying to figure out like what the ceiling or how much you can trade really comes down to understanding what measurable value you're creating for your customers. Yeah. And so you know, I, I kind of bucket things, I bucket products into two buckets. One is there's, I can't measure value, but you kind of know it when you see it. And then there's the value that I can measure. And you know, as an investor, I tend to just stick in bucket two. Because bucket one is typically a religious movement. I can't predict those. Yeah. So for example, bucket one products, we're at Slack. At the seed stage, you know, whoever invested the seed, actually know who it was, they did great. But like, is there any way to know that this form of messaging was going to transform the way that companies communicate? No. Right? Yeah. And but if you were to go to any CIO who has a you know $10 million Slack contract today, if those exist, and you say, you know, what is the value of this the organization? They'd be like, my users are going to be furious if I take it away. Yeah. And we have to have it. I don't know the value, can't measure it, but it is, we need yeah. it. Those are really hard to predict. Yeah. In the second bucket, and those are also hard to price for that reason too. If you develop pricing power, the more, you know, religious converts you get over time and the enthusiasm with which they need that product. The former bucket, which is value that I can measure and value gets measured along three dimensions typically. Does it influence revenue in some way? Does it improve profitability in some way, meaning reduce costs or avoid some cost? Or does it remove some risk? Because risk is measurable to a lot of organizations. And the nice thing about understanding the value that you're creating is you can measure it. Ah, if you build this yourself, well, it's going to take four engineers. Those cost, you know, $150,000 a year, and it's going to take you eight months. Well, we can do that math to figure out however 
how many hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars it's going to cost you. Or you can buy from us and we're charging, you know, 25% that. Yep. That is a value trade that I can make all day and I can communicate that to my customers. And, and the job of the founder, the job of the person like building a product that they're selling is to figure out like, like how explicitly can they communicate that value and how close can they get to the top of that value trade? Well, if I can communicate a million explicitly, can I ask for 900K here? Right? Like, yep. like how can, can I exceed that ceiling? Is there some other value that I'm creating that like a premium this customer is willing to apply? But trying to figure out where you are in terms of that measurable value is really the job to be done. And that's how you think about pricing. Yep. Man, well, Chase, this has been a fascinating and super helpful conversation. I have kind of one observation as I've been sitting here listening and want to ask how folks can connect with you. But it's be kind of towards the beginning of the show, you talked about like how can engineers learn to go to market and talked about expanding the scope of the problem from just building the thing to like also getting it into the hands of the right people. And then you talked about like applying the engineering brain to that whole problem, not just the product. The one thing I've been thinking about is as we've been talking and at the pricing conversation, we talked a lot about iterating, right? And I think that's like, that's a piece of engineering that should directly be applied to go to market is like, ship and iterate and ship and iterate and you'll get better and better as you go. But I think that's a little piece that engineers can hold on to that's like very familiar. And has just been, that's been going through my head as we've been talking. Beautifully summarized. But that's it. If folks want to connect with you, how can they do that? I have a very easy email. Unfortunately, it's composed of words that are easy to spell. It's chase at vertexventures.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and it's just Chase Roberts with no vowels. You got to keep it nice and succinct. C-H-S-R-B-R-T-S. So we'd love to hang out in, in, in both forms. Great. Well, Chase, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Awesome. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at Eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.